Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour Jamie Ivy podcast. I am your host, Jamie, and I'm really excited that you're here. Every week, I invite a girlfriend to join me on the show, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Guys, I want to thank one of our sponsors for today's happy hour, and that is Kurt Felsman. Are you looking for more great, meaningful worship these days? Kurt Felsman is a Canadian-born worship leader now living in the U.S. with his family. He's been leading people in corporate worship for nearly 20 years, and his heart is to see people experience the goodness and glory of God. Kurt's debut EP, called Majesty and Mystery, is both beautifully and biblically crafted for a worshipful listening experience. Majesty and Mystery contains a collection of powerful songs designed to be sung. With soaring melodies and beautifully crafted musical elements, Majesty and Mystery will draw the listener's heart into worship. Majesty and Mystery is available on iTunes and all major music retailers. Also, make sure you check out his website at kurtfelsman.com and follow him on Facebook at Kurt Felsman Music and at kfelsman on Instagram and Twitter. Guys, for the next few weeks, he's going to be giving away some copies just for us Happy Hour listeners. So make sure you follow and comment with the hashtag The Happy Hour and tag a friend on his post. You're not going to be sorry for adding this EP into your worship playlist. Again, that's Kurt Felsman with his debut EP, Majesty and Mystery. Guys, you're listening to episode number 75, and today's guest is Liz Bohannon, who is the founder and creator and everything that goes along with Seiko. You may have seen these. There's some beautiful shoes that I've had for a couple of years, and they, they now have some more awesome product along with that line as well. Today, Liz and I talked about her time on Shark Tank, plus some of her crazy adventures in Uganda. You're going to love it. Guys, before we get to my conversation with Liz, I want to make sure that you're subscribed to the show on iTunes. It's super easy. Just go to jamieivy.com iTunes. Once you're there, you just hit the subscribe button, and what that does is it ensures that you don't miss anything. Whether that's a new episode or a special announcement about a live show that we did last week, regardless of whatever it is, make sure you go to jamieivy.com slash iTunes and click subscribe so you're always up to date on all things happy hour. Okay, guys, here is my conversation with Liz. That is so fun. And live podcast, I've only, uh, I think I've only ever been to one. I, I went to a This American Life live and it was one of the best oh, days of my life. That would have been amazing. Besides the fact that halfway through... I realized I had malaria. Stop. And that kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but Ira Glass can cover all of those ills. That's right. I was like, I'm 90% positive. I had just gotten back from Uganda. It was like my surprise welcome home. My husband surprised me with tickets to go see Ira Glass. And we drove like an hour and a half to go see it. And literally sitting in the theater, I was like, it was like halfway through the show. And I was like, I know this feeling and this is not good. But like the I flu? was on stage right now. It is like the flu, but it, it, it's kind of different for everybody. But once you get it a couple times, you can start to recognize it. So for me, my joints start hurting uh-huh. like pretty bad all of a sudden. And even like your hair follicles, like everything just kind of starts feeling really achy in a way that's like really distinctly different than the flu. And then all of the other symptoms are really similar. And so it was, and it happens pretty fast. And so it was just like, cause basically what happens is like the parasites are multiplying inside your blood, but they're in like these like kind of contained sacs. This is very, you know, properly medical not. And then all of a sudden they kind of like burst and all at once kind of release into your system. So it happens pretty fast, which is kind of a different feeling. So I was like, Dang You're like, it. I know it. I know it. And I was right. But still, you know. It's worth it, was, it for I, Ira Glass. And it was such an amazing experience. And I loved it. What made it so I, – I have so many questions from this conversation that I want to go with. I want to go with the parasites. I want to go with Uganda. But first, I need to know what made the experience so wonderful at This American Life. Well, I think part of it for me was like – I think it was just Ira. Like I, and that's such an annoying thing to say because it's like, here's something applicable for you. Just be Ira. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was like I had listened to the podcast for so long. Specifically, this was back when we were still living in Kansas City. And so I was running Seiko all by myself out of our one-bedroom apartment doing, you know, like what all new business owners do, which is everything. But a lot of that included I was doing all of our like shipping and fulfilling and customer service. So it was like, a, I would spend big chunks of my day printing out labels. Literally, I would hand lace up every sandal. At this point, 
um, <laughs> I hadn't been, I wasn't quite bright enough to be like, maybe we should be ironing these straps in Uganda. So I would get like a big ball of straps that were like tied in a bow. And so I would literally sit on the floor and put one end of the strap underneath our couch to hold it and then take my hair straightener and straighten like every single strap before I would ship it out. So I was spending a lot of time sitting on the floor doing really just like manual mindless work and listening to This American Life. So I would listen. I mean, I got through every single This American Life in like the history of the podcast in that I think like probably first year because I would sometimes listen to like four or five a day. So Ira kind of became like my butt. It was like I would be all by myself totally no other human contact. And once I discovered This American Life, and that was before podcasts were like quite as commonplace as oh, they are Oh, that's so now. true. We used to listen to This American Life, and I don't think I even knew that it was called a podcast. I don't even, yeah, that was word like was so thing. foreign to me. Yeah. Really. And so I was just like, oh my gosh, this is like, it honestly just felt like a gift from above that it was like, this form of entertainment, but also learning. And I had this other human that would like be in the room with me. And so he ended up becoming this kind of like important person. So for me, I think part of it was just like seeing it, seeing him and, and like, you know, you have all of these ideas of like who these people are going to be and what their like presence is going to be like. And with Ira Glass, it was like all of that was exactly how you would imagine it. And then it's also really cool to see, um, This was like, gosh, probably five years ago. So it's really hard to remember. But it's really cool to see the differences between you can start to see what happens in editing versus what happens on the show. And, you know, shows like This American Life and Radiolab, they do a lot of really, I think, incredible editing, which Mm -hmm. is part of what makes the show so amazing. And so it was really cool. They would do some of that like on stage. Oh, that's cool. So you're getting this like behind the scenes glimpse into like how a podcast is made again before it was like really a thing and yeah. that was kind of thrilling too and they had some like live stuff happening too so that there were some dancers that were involved and like some acts that were more kind of like traditional theater kind of live performance uh-huh. um I just loved it all I loved it all by the end I was so miserable but I was still kind of blissful but you're still going for it all the way oh yeah I and mean, Ben was like don't you think we should go home and I was like no we're staying <laughs> I'm making it through this. Well, that makes me want to ask you because I think people may be listening and we just kind of jumped into the conversation, which is what we do here at the happy hour. But what is, you mentioned your organization that you run and I've no, tell me when you started because I believe I've had a pair of these shoes for a long time. Is that possible? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I own two pairs just so it's all out there. Of the sandals or the shoes? The sandals. And so I went to look at your webpage the other day and I was like, Oh my gosh, they have everything now. Like I thought you just did sandals still because that's what you started with, right? Yeah, we started with sandals and we were exclusively sandals for like the first three and a half, four years. So kind of branching out into closed-toed footwear and handbags and textiles, that has all been um, my existence for about the last two years. Um, And so, yes, that's all relatively new, but the sandals – have been around for a while. So I lived in, I was living in East Africa in like 2008, 2009. So Seiko has been around since like, mm, depending on how you count starting 2009, 2010. Which that's, that's, it's a good, you've been around for a while. I mean, yeah, it's like, I feel like we're pretty firmly in the like, yeah, you're out of the stage. You're out of the newlywed stage. Yes. And kind of into like, you've got a little bit of a rhythm and you've been around the block a couple times, but you're still in some ways really operating new because we're so small. So I feel like we still kind of have one, the agility and two, you know, the resource situation that, that startup companies have, but it's not like, oh my gosh, everything is new every single time. So right. it's like a fun, it's kind of a fun season to be in. So you, you just randomly started a company. How did this come about? <laughs> Yeah, basically. So, which I, funny enough, a lot of people when they start companies, like I'll ask them that, like, yeah, just kind of, like I just kinda. did it. <laughs> I say I accidentally started a shoe company, and it's pretty accurate, I would say. So, I I studied journalism when I was in university. I went to the University of Missouri and went to the journalism school there, and was definitely like a J school kid. And my kind of hopes and dreams and vision was I wanted to be a journalist, and specifically, I wanted to be a journalist who 
traveled around the world and covered issues affecting my, my biggest passion, which was women and girls living in extreme poverty and in conflict and post-conflict zones. Um, and so I was like very specific. That's what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to be the next Nick Kristoff. So that was kind of my deal. And, but I was a kid, I like grew up in the Midwest. I didn't have a ton of experience in the Midwest with women living in extreme poverty or conflict or post-conflict zones. Uh And I also didn't travel a ton growing up. I didn't have a family that traveled a lot and that was not kind of a part of my growing up experience. Um, and so when I graduated from college, I was like, well, I should probably go start learning some stuff. I kind of had all of this head knowledge and theory and information about, you know, situations globally, but I had never really experienced that. And for me, a huge part of it was like, there was a really big relational gap between this thing that I said I really cared about, which was women and girls living in extreme poverty and conflict. Um, and then my life, which you had never been totally. And it was like, um, I know a lot about this, but I don't have a single friend who's a woman who's grown up in extreme poverty or in conflict. Or you've um, never even you've never even been had you ever even been out of America? I had, but like like Cancun uh, or like like Mexico yeah. mission trip in high school, okay, and yeah. then I went to you know backpacked in Europe with my little sister. Okay, so pretty limited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and so before I even like wanted to do proper journalism, my thought was like I just need to like spend some time kind of closing this gap. Um, and so I had gotten my first job right out of college. I was working at this huge kind of global communication firm and about three months in quit my job, (laughs) which this was like, you know, in 2008, right as the economy is like really going into the sinker. Yeah. Great time to quit your job. Yeah. 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 And so I quit my job and I bought a one-way plane ticket to Uganda. Okay, uh, now just I just have to ask you here real quick because that you just said that so flippantly, and that is just like you just what you did. Like it seems so long ago, it's just what you did. But surely there were people around you that were saying, "Liz, this is stupid." Oh, if by people you mean almost everybody. Everyone. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I had like maybe a couple supporters, but yeah, it was pretty like it was a pretty one. You know, quitting your job as a new college graduate in the height of a recession—that was like the dad problem, right? He's like, "Oh, great, here, you know, you just got done with." I had two degrees at the time. I just finished up my master's degree in journalism and landed this job at, you know, probably like the best kind of firm in our city. And all of his dreams are coming true. And then I was like, "Mm, actually, bye. I'm just going to fly to Africa. (laughs) Yeah. And then with, you know, with my mom, it's more of the like, oh, you know, neither of my parents have traveled, uh, you know, have traveled extensively or had ever stepped foot, you know, on the continent of Africa. So like my mom's got all of these ideas about, you know, me being in these four different areas. And, you know, to be fair, I'm the daughter who's like, I want to go report about issues, you know, facing women living in conflict, which probably doesn't (laughs) make your mom feel the most, you know, the best. And mind you, I'm like a 20, 22 year old, have never really traveled before. Like you're just going to take on the world girl who doesn't speak any other language. I'm like very convinced that all of those things don't matter. And I didn't know anyone. So I had, there was one girl that I went to college with um, and we weren't even like really good friends, but we were like acquaintances enough that I went to her going away party. She was a year older than me and she went to Uganda to work for, she took like a two year job to work at an orphanage in Uganda. And I went to her goodbye party, probably just because I heard there was going to be G's there or something. (laughs) And, um, and at her party, you know, she like flippantly to everyone is like, Hey, if anybody ever wants to come to Uganda, like come visit me, I'll want friends. And so I literally had not spoken to this girl in over a year. And I shot her an email and I was like, Hey, it's me. I don't know if you totally remember (laughs) me from college, but, um, I, I'm moving to Uganda and six weeks or I think it was actually probably a month at that point, uh, would love to hang out. (laughs) And luckily she emailed me back and she was like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like, what are you doing? Where are you staying? And I just emailed back and I was like, I don't know. (laughs) She was like, Oh, well you can stay with me until you kind of get your feet on the ground and figure out what you're going to do, which was totally a godsend. But so it was literally, that was the only phone number that I had in the entire country. So when I showed up, actually showed up in the country that night, um, cause the flight gets in at like midnight uh-huh. and for some reason I can't remember what had happened, but she was going to come up and pick me up with a couple friends and, um, just no one showed up. So it's like midnight. They're not there. 
I don't have a phone. I've like never. This been is to- making me sweat, Liz. What do you mean you showed up in like Kampala? Is that where you flew in? Uh, you fly into Entebbe. Okay, to is- Entebbe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, which I mean, is I actually feels like I just went to Uganda this spring oh, last awesome. last year, and Entebbe Kampala is big. Entebbe is not that. It's not that big, is it? It's like oh. weird where the airport is. Weird, and it's like an hour away from the yes. city. Yes, kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, you show you- up. It's so show up. I'm like just thinking Kristen is going to be there and I'll recognize her and like easy peasy one and done. Right. Anyway, someone got sick or something. I can't remember. So they were like almost two hours late. So it was like, but they had no way to get a hold of me and I had no way to get a hold of them. And I had kind of given myself, I was like, okay, I'll give them a couple hours. And, but I was like, you know, by 2 a.m., it's like the airport kind of cleared out. I was just like, you know, the girl with her little you know, like crossbody mountain gear, like satchel Uh and long maxi dress, like, Hey guys, I'm here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) But they came up and they found me and that was the, um, but that was kind of the start of it. So I knew one person, I do always say, I mean, and then I ended up literally me and this girl ended up sharing a, basically it was like a little bit bigger than it's like in between a twin size and full size bed for the next a uh, couple months, so we okay. really. She's one of my dear friends now. Well, I, I do I'm always say sure. just assume a friendship because you never know. You know, it's yeah. like I know you might not remember me, but there's a chance we'll be great friends someday. So let's okay, just so, kick it off like that. So I clearly know that your story worked out okay and everything was fine. But I'm telling you, the beginning of that story, it's like a lifetime movie of someone who gets snatched up by like a mafia. I, I, my dad was like. Wanted me to watch Taken. <laughs> well, your story sounds like the intro to Taken number four. So it does. And I do like, I give my parents, you know, at the time I, I was, you know, frustrated with how whatever I thought it was, closed minded or overprotective. But now I'm like, oh my gosh, I cannot imagine. Like, I was not. And the reality is it's like Uganda, and you know this, it's like you can, Uganda is not, at this point at least, thank God, you know, a war-torn zone, and there's tons of expats that go, and Kampala is like super developed, but I didn't know, like I literally could have been showing up in, you know, the bush and and I really wouldn't have known, but you know, everything works out, and I'm, I'm pretty thankful actually for seasons of naivete. I mean, it's easier to say that when you're sitting on the side where it worked out. And I, I've become a lot smarter, I think, and more aware. And I think I'm a better – I still have a pretty high risk tolerance, but I want to believe that um, they're a little bit more calculated these days. So sure. I feel good about that part of my personal development. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. That is just, that's wonderful. I was in Jinja in the spring. And that's like... 
I mean, I went to a coffee shop every day. I mean, that place is so reminded me of home minus a lot of stuff. But, you know, it's not like people think, especially if they've never been to any country in Africa, they think that they're just going to show up and, like, be on a safari. Totally. And that's just not true. Okay, so you fly to Uganda. You meet new friends. Still, how does this business come about? So, yeah. So I kind of just started traveling around Uganda. I was, like, just trying to learn as much as possible, make friends. You know, when you tell your parents, they're like, what are you doing in Africa? I'm like, I need to make some friends. And they're like, can't you just join a volleyball league like your sister? <laughs> so, like, literally my goal was just, like, make friends. You know, and I, I had this quote-unquote, you know, skill set, which is, like, I didn't really have. I was just coming out of college, so let's take that with a grain of salt. So I was volunteering, and I was doing just, like, any sort of communication work that I thought could be helpful to people that were doing cool things, whether that was writing newsletters or taking photos or doing, you know, profile stories or donor relations. Oh, for people already on the ground, you're making those relationships. That's great. Yeah, so I would kind of show up and say, hey, here's what I'm a little bit good at. Do you need help? Is there anything we can do? And that was kind of my, like, entry point into just, like, meeting people and being a part of some communities. And so I started doing that, um, and I thought, well, this will be a really great way to just, like, learn on overdrive. And um, of all the organizations that I kind of just started, like, poking my head into, there was one specific one that really kind of got me. And um, it's called Cornerstone Development, and they're based in Kampala. They're based in Uganda, but now they've got schools and initiatives in several different East African countries. Um, and basically what they do, I was just super drawn to their model. So their whole vision is like, hey, let's find the best and the brightest students in the entire country who have this potential for leadership and for actually becoming like high-level leaders in Uganda. Um, let's, let's find them. Let's invest in them. But students that also probably wouldn't have um, access to education or family connections or resources to actually get to where they need to go, but really show this great potential. And so they go around the country and they'll interview seven or 800 students a year, and then they'll pick 25 boys and 25 girls. Wow. Um, And so it's really selective. And their whole vision is like, hey, we don't want to be a mass, like, Uh we're not going to be a numbers nonprofit that can say, like, we fed thousands of people. Right. And instead saying, like, we're going to invest really deeply into a small amount of students, and then and then we're going to be they're going to be in for the rest of their lives. They're going to be a part of this family, and we're going to build this like network and support. And part of their vision behind it, um, they they do a lot kind of just around like reconciliation and unity. So they're you know Uganda is like a pretty scattered you could say country. I mean that's kind of what happens when you know, a bunch of white people come in and uh-huh. take a red marker and say you're a country now. Right. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, there's tons of different languages and ethnicities and tribes. And so their whole vision is, let's not only equip these students to be leaders, but let's actually purposefully and intentionally recruit students that come from backgrounds of conflict. Um, And, you know, whether that's ethnic or tribal, bring them to this school, not only put them in the same school together, but then go ahead and say like, okay, now you four, like you're in this care groups, which means for the next two years, you're going to live together. You're going to do your chores together. You're going to go to classes together. Your whole lives are kind of going to revolve around depending on one another. And the only way that this is going to work is if you do that um, with the deep belief that, you know, when people who think that they have nothing in common and think maybe their enemies actually start living life side by side one another, all of a sudden we realize like, oh, wow, we have yeah. way more in than we have different. What a concept, right? right? Crazy, right? And so their whole thing is like, hey, if we can unite 18-year-old young men and women who then go on to become professors and lawyers and policymakers, um, and they are coming from this background and tradition of reconciliation and unity, here's this incredible kind of long-term pathway towards, like, overall national unity and peace. And I was like, just loved it, just ate it all up. Loved the model, loved the idea of investing in a few really deeply, loved the idea of the focus on reconciliation, and loved the idea of saying, like, hey, these are the future leaders. Let's invest in them and support them um, as opposed to coming in and saying, like, we want this is how we want to change. Um, so I loved all of it. So I just started hanging out a lot there, you know, like asking yeah. if I could volunteer and, you know, doing my little communications things. <laughs> and um, they were very sweet and let me do that. 
and so found myself specifically really drawn to the girls school. So at this time the boys school was only about 25 years old and the girls school or the boys school is 25 years old and the girls school is only about five years old. 25 years. That's a long time that that had been going on. Super long time, which is another reason why I was really drawn to, I mean, it was just like a very kind of grassroots, like Ugandan run. There's one family that like really started it and they're an American family, but they both grew up in Kenya. So they've been, they're, they're lifers. They've been in East Africa for their whole lives and everyone else for the most part in the organization is Ugandan. Everyone actually. Which is Um, how things will work. Yes. And so, um, so yeah, so the boys school is 25 years old. So they had been at it for a really long time and it seemed like kind of this, this amazing, um, success with these young men and, you know, lights turned on and they were like, Oh, maybe we should do this with young women. Yeah. 25 years too late, but Hey, better late than never. Right. And so I was, I was really drawn to these young women and was just like, I would go up to the, the school and it was just kind of that sense of like, you know, when you just have that moment where you're like, these are my people. Yeah. I've, like I found my people and I just like received so much life from being around these young women. And, you know, I was 21, 22 at the time. They were between like 18 and 20. So I was like one life stage ahead of them, but still very much so um, they were, they were peers. And I was just like totally drawn to them and their visions for their community and how hardworking they were and how much they like really challenged me as a human. And they became really dear friends through this process. And um, the more I hung out up at the school, the more I kind of became a part of this organization, the more I realized that they were facing some pretty big challenges um, that they had seen with the boys school, but that were just like completely exasperated with the young women. And one of those challenges was, um, so the students graduate in December from high school. And then it's basically a secondary school program. Um, and, and at the end of December, they graduate. And then there's a nine month gap from December to August. Um, it's basically like a really long extended summer break. And the reason that Uganda does this is it's intended to allow students that actually test into college to be able to find a job to make money to pay right. for college. Mm-hmm. Um, so Uganda, like most developing economies, is really cash-based. So you're not like getting student loans or putting it on credit cards. It's like if you can't pay in cash on day one of school, and this starts in kindergarten, you just don't go to school that semester. And you don't yeah. go to school until you can pay your fees. And the cost of university in Uganda um, compared to the, to the average wage is actually very high. So college ends up kind of being this luxury that upper middle class kids um, can afford and it becomes a huge financial burden for anybody else. And so what was happening during this nine month gap is these young women were graduating. Now, keep in mind, they've been together at this school, you know, so they come from all over Uganda and then they're all at the school for two years. It's a boarding school. And um, and and they've been in this environment where they're with other like-minded women who a lot of them are the first ones in their entire villages who have ever made it this far in school. They've got teachers and administrators that are actually like saying, hey, like we believe in you and we yeah. want to be leaders. And that's pretty unique. And so they had all of this like energy and community and support and they had built, you know, entirely new like languages for thinking about themselves and their place in the world. And then they scatter and they go back to their villages for these nine months where they're kind of freaks, to be honest. Yeah. Like, you know, there's maybe no one else in their village has been this far in school. There's not a ton of social support for them to even be continuing on to university. There's a ton of pressure for them to get married and start having kids. And they come from areas, you know, whether that's dowries or bride price or like very real pressures um, to not continue their education. And then on top of that, of course, they can't find jobs. You know, most of them are coming from parts of the country where there's up to a 80% unemployment rate. And so especially if you're an 18-year-old girl looking for a job and competing for those, your chances are not great. So that's kind of like where I walked into the story and they're brainstorming in the organization. Like I mentioned, they're like pretty small and grassroots and they take, you know, that really cool kind of like relational, we're not going to fundraise, we're not going to be this like formal big nonprofit will like when the Lord provides the money, it'll come in. And, and so they don't have the like capital resources to say like, let's just pay for 25 university tuitions a year. Yeah. Um, And so they're really thinking, what do we do? And this was just kind of like where I popped into the story. And I was like, well, we have to do something like that's really dumb. You know, like 
you're 25 of the smartest, brightest women in the country, the idea that they've gotten this far and that they would go back to their villages and not continue on to university, which means not kind of continue these paths and, and pursue these dreams that they have for themselves in the community is dumb. Let's it's, almost, it's almost like, let's put them through this whole program and then we nothing else for you. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, and I was so, I loved their work and was like so grateful for everything that they had done up until this point that it was like, we can't, no, 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 this can't happen. This is not where the buck stops kind of thing. So, um, so I was like, this is going to be my deal. This is my deal. And I'll like, let me, you know, can I dive into this? And they were like, yes, please go for it. Um, and so that kind of started this really interesting journey and I'll try to keep it somewhat brief, but really my, my first thought was like, oh, I know exactly what we'll do. Um, because I'm an American in Africa and this is what we do. I'm going to start, work. yes, this will work. I will, you know, we'll start some sort of charity or sponsorship program and I'm going to match up women in the U S with women in Uganda based off their career interests. And, you know, it was basically a sponsorship program, but I thought I was clever with my little mentor twist. Yeah. Um, so I like was like, oh yeah, this is, this is, this is my jam. I had worked for nonprofits similar to this before. I kind of had this vision for like, this is what it'll look like. And, um, I was pretty comfortable with it, to be honest. And before I really dove in, I wanted to make sure I, I was asking the right questions. And so I kind of just started hosting these little informal like focus groups and like community groups where um, I would just talk to Ugandans and talk to them about what are the problems and what are solutions that you've seen before and um, really making sure I was on on the right track. And I was pretty shocked, to be honest, after doing that what I kept hearing um, and these kind of nuggets of wisdom and truth that were coming out of these conversations with my, my fellow Ugandan peers. And a couple big things were one addressing the, the like social needs of these young women and saying, well, if you just like, if they go back to their villages and we're just like sending them checks every month or at the end of their nine months to pay for them to go to school, they're still isolated. They're right. still losing that momentum in that community and that support. So one, you should do something that keeps them together and kind of keeps that momentum alive. Um, and then two, just like kind of these like basic, like fundamental questions about sustainability and economics and is sending money in um, to a place the best possible solution long term? And how do you sustain that? Right. And, um, you know, and especially in this circumstance, I am so Seiko is a for profit company, and we can talk more about that later. And we're very passionate about it. I definitely, there are a lot of people that would say nonprofits, I mean, I sit in a development space that's very harsh on, on nonprofits and charities in general and kind of the unintended side effects, specifically American-based charities in mm -hmm. Africa, mm -hmm. which I think is really valid and it's a super important conversation to have. I, I, I would consider myself a moderate. There are problems that I'm like, you can't solve that with a marketplace solution. Um, we need charities and philanthropy plays like a really important role in society. We can be more critical about doing that really well and minimizing negative effects, um, which I think we have a lot of room to do specifically in America and with how we think about Africa. And we're very passionate about that. Um, but there, you know, in this circumstance, it was like, okay, we're working with, you know, 18, 19 year old educated able-bodied women, like we shouldn't, we should not immediately jump to like, let's have people give us money. It was yeah. like, is there, is there a viable marketplace solution to this problem? And I really do believe that that should be our first question in addressing social issues is, is there a viable marketplace solution that's financially sustainable, that would contribute to a local economy, that would provide employment, like all of these things that are like pretty basic. And I feel like we think about it a lot when we think about our own country mm -hmm. and our own economy. But mm -hmm. then for some reason, as Americans, when we put on our like, let's go to Africa goggles, it's like everything becomes the answer to everything is like, let's start a charity. Let's start a nonprofit. Right. Um, and so became pretty like convinced, like we need to be providing jobs. This needs to be financially sustainable. It needs to be employment based. Like these young women should like giving them an opportunity to work and to learn in that context is super important and keeping them together. And that was kind of like, these are the goals and then do something that makes enough money so we can send them to college at the end of that eight, nine months. Yeah. I, I love the, the for-profit in the, for the marketplace and everything. I might have a friend, Jessica, who runs Noonday Collection and they're oh, yeah. a for-profit. And I love their model because I feel like, I mean, a lot of things I love about it, but number one is like the dignity that the women are given 
or the man, whoever is creating uh, your mm-hmm. stuff, the dignity that they're given is they are actually working and, and making an income for their family or for themselves versus just getting money from some Americans and then living on that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it totally does. And I would honestly say beyond all of the economics and the theory, I think the thing that continues to compel us the most about this model is the relational aspect. Like we, and it took, to be completely honest, like it took a while to rebuild a culture um, because there's so, you know, for the last 25 years, the way Ugandans have interacted with white Americans has been in the context of charity. Mm -hmm. And so, and what charity does or can do is set up this really strong dynamic between um, giver and receiver. And so, and what it says is like, I am the giver in this relationship and you are the receiver in this relationship. Uh And I have just really come to believe that that is not the way that God intended the kingdom of God to work. Um, And that, in that giving and receiving within relationships should always be this kind of seasonal, like fluid thing where it's like, yes, as, as like the, the kingdom of God, I am sometimes in a role where I'm giving. Um, and then I'm sometimes in the position where I'm receiving, but the moment we kind of get into this place where it's like locked and loaded, I am the giver. You are the receiver. I have nothing to learn from you. I only have something to give and you only have things to learn from me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it really robs both parties of a lot of dignity and a lot of life of what can happen in mutually beneficial relationships that are codependent in the best way. Yeah. Saying like, these are my gifts, but I also in the process of that want to acknowledge, here's your gifts. How can we combine those together so that we're both depending on one another, but also we're both like succeeding together and kind of this like sink or swim mentality. And to be totally honest, like creating that culture was, um, it was tough. And we had to be really intentional about like the decisions that we made about the language that we use. Like we're really, we try really hard. Um, you know, even just in like Seiko women are on team Seiko. Like I would, their titles aren't any different than how I would say of a woman, you know, of our marketing assistant mm-hmm. that I employ here in the U.S., like using language like beneficiaries or donors or these kind of things of really saying like, here's the deal. There, there are two types of people in the world as far as I'm concerned. You are either on Team Seiko, and that means you are everything from a sandal maker to a designer to a cook to a cleaner to a marketer to a finance person, um, or you are a potential customer of Seiko. There you go. <laughs> and we are all going to work together to get that person uh, to be a part of the larger Seiko family. And that's the only division that we're going to have. Um, and I just really believe it's just, it's so cool. And, you know, it makes some people really uncomfortable, less now than it did six years ago. But, man, I remember, you know, my husband and I, we lived out of our car for six months and we traveled the U.S. and we would host trunk shows and these, like, home parties um, when we were launching Seiko and I, I remember so clearly sitting in people's living rooms and telling them the story and everybody, you know, loving it and being all about it. And then a question would come up about, you know, how the finances work. And the moment we would say like, we're a business and this is how it works. People would get so uncomfortable. Cause they wanted like, it to be so, like a charity thing. Totally. They wanted it to be a charity uh-huh. and they want the answer of like a hundred percent of your dollars from this sandal is going into a scholarship fund and you right. something yeah. that's like, super clean. It's super clear. It's like, I am the donor. They are the receiver. By buying this thing, I'm going to feel great about it because all of my money is being given to somebody. And and there was this kind of idea of like, so you're like, you're like kind of dependent on these, you know, girls in Uganda for your like livelihood too. And that would make people super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my husband and I would look at each other and be like, "Yeah." yeah. And that's our favorite part. Like, I love that I can say, my life and like my ability to get to like come to work and have a job where I'm like challenged and being fulfilled and you know all of these things is largely dependent that like 19, 20, 65 year old women in Uganda are saying like yes we're committed we're in we're going to do our part we're going to do our role and together we're going to like make this impossibly you know impossibly big dream like Uh actually work and it only works if we all show up and you know Uh, what's funny liz is when you're saying that about people wanting to know like oh i want to know that 100 percent of this goes to the college fund i was just thinking as you were saying that and i was like when's the last time you went to the gap and bought a shirt 
and wanted to know like where all that money went. Absolutely. It's, it's only when we're presenting, when you're telling us, Hey, look at the people who are, who are Seiko people. They're on team Seiko. Look at these people. And then we see, Oh, these are Ugandan women. Well, then it gets, then we start to feel weird about it or not me, but you know, people start to feel weird. Like, well, I need to know where all this money's going. And totally. then you're saying, well, it's actually like, it's a business. So this is, this is a company, you know, but we don't right. question that anywhere else. Nope. And, and I really believe if we did start, then we would change a lot of our buying patterns. Our behaviors would be yes. very, very, very different. I yeah. completely agree with that. And, and, you know, the hard thing that we've learned, and this is, you know, my constant struggle between, I started Seiko out of a very ideological place in the sense of like, here was the goal. Here's the social goal. You know, I started as like this super ideological, idealistic journalism kid. And now I'm running a fashion brand a for-profit company that's a fashion brand. So I have some interesting like tensions between, you know, what the vehicle kind of the means to an end is and kind of the constant challenge between being an excellent marketer and then being someone who tends to get a little bit into the weeds when it comes to the more like ideological, philosophical, like, you know, structure of who we are as a company and what we believe in is that like, there is a pretty small percentage of American consumers who want to dive in to those things. Yeah. You know, it's like the, and that's why companies like a, a Tom's have been wildly successful because they've been able to get it down to like a three word slogan. And it's like one for one, buy yeah. this and this uh -huh. will happen. And that's really compelling to a consumer who wants to be able to say like, I, I know in 10 seconds that this is, when I do this, this is what's happening. No questions asked. That feels really good. I don't need to ask any further questions. And, you know, since the beginning of Seiko, people have been advising us and saying, like, it needs to be simpler. You have need, you know, like, you have to, what's your three-word tagline yeah, uh -huh. that's going to explain it to people? And I think if I were a really good marketer and entrepreneur, I would have been like, yes. And this is honestly, I'm, I'm like being, this isn't, I think one of my struggles as an entrepreneur is like, but my answer to that is like, but poverty's super complex, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and this situation is about economics and it's about imperialism and it's about relationships and it's about gender dynamics and all of these different things. And like, I don't know if I can get behind a three word slogan and I don't really feel comfortable telling you like this, you know, like if you buy this sandal, you will then feed someone happens, for right. 10 years or, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you will be a part of a really beautiful, redemptive, messy, co-creating story. Yeah. And I, I want to be, and I would love for you to come be a part of that in a way that's like transparent and relational. And we have an open door policy and we share a lot of information. Um, but it doesn't necessarily come down to like, if you do this, then this will definitely happen. Um, and so how do you like be a good marketer and be a good entrepreneur and run like a company that can, you know, with, in a Google ad, get someone's attention right. enough to drive them to your website, but then also build something that you feel is really like authentic yeah. and real and not necessarily and be true like, to yourself. Here's silver yeah. Bullet. Totally. Yeah. 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 So you don't, you can't come up with a three word thing for Seiko because of the complexities that you're looking at. And I think that's something that a lot of us in America. And I would say that I still, God still shows me things every day, but I have learned so much in like the past 10 years of my life of the complexities of poverty and of the complexities of war torn areas and of the complexities of women around the world. Like, I think that we sometimes hear those things don't even like, we're just like, Oh, they're just poor. And like, we just send them some money. Like, yeah, like there's <laughs> like, there's so many more layers that even someone like you, or even my friend Jessica, who's been doing Noonday for a while, or even anyone else, like there still are so many layers that you guys are learning as you have oh a company that works in another place on the world. Yes. And just constantly learning. And it's so humbling because yeah. it's like you have this idea and you're like, oh, this is what we need to do and this will work. And then you get into it and you're like, oh my gosh, there's 10 more layers. There's so much. Yeah. And we need to unpack this before we can even start doing that. And there's like so much there. And just eventually, I mean, there's, I think basically two things happen. You either like, you either learn that you have to just approach everything with humility and an open hand and say, I'm probably going to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then we're going to have to go back and we're going to rework this or people like burn out. Yeah. Because I think people that come into the development space and, and they expect this easy, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to like go to Africa and build a house. And then you get there and you like realize like, oh, is this like what I thought it is? <laughs> and what, you know, and there's like 
so many questions. And so you either end up just like, I feel like kind of surrendering everything and saying like, I'm going to be okay with the long haul and I'm going to be okay with this being really messy and I'm going to be okay with potentially taking wrong paths and, and, and having like, the willingness to say like, okay, we need to rework this or you're going to get really burnt out and probably bitter and say like, none of this is really working anyway. And the world's so crappy and messed up. I'm just going to, I'm done. I'm going to go back to America and live my life. It's that every person that I've talked to that works with any kind of nonprofit or for-profit in another world, the people that are like longstanding and the people that make it are the ones that are humbly able to say to whoever they're working with, the native people of that country, show me how you do stuff here teach totally. me. And this yep. is not, we're not going to come in and bring how I run a business in Austin, um, to Jinja, but I'm going to come in to Jinja and say, Hey, how do you do things? And that's how we'll do it. Okay, guys, before we get back to my conversation with Liz, I want to tell you about one of the sponsors for this week's episode, Pine Cove. Pine Cove is a Christian camp. And I want to tell you about spending, sending your kids to summer camp at Pine Cove. Here's why camp ministry is awesome. Your kids get a whole week away from technology to be out in God's creation. They get to be pushed out of their comfort zone with fun activities like high ropes courses, zip lines, and horseback riding. Pine Cove scores the nation for the most excellent, intentional, Jesus-loving college students to invest in your kids for a week as their counselors. We've sent our kids to Pine Cove for years now, and they always come back with so many stories of what they learned about the Bible and how they felt so loved by the staff. Pine Cove takes safety seriously, and as a mom myself, I trust them completely with my kids. You can find out more information about Pine Cove on their website, pinecove.com. And guys, I, I literally want to tell you, we've done family camp, we've done camp in the city, we've done sending our kids to camp. We love Pine Cove, and I can very proudly stand behind them and say that you would have a great experience with them. Check them out, pinecove.com. And now, back to my conversation with Liz. Okay, I want to hear about Shark Tank, because I told you that I saw you on Shark Tank. And we watched the show as a family, and so I need to know what that experience was like. It was bananas. Like, how long are you in that room? Because, you know, the TV, they show us, you're like, I mean, what, 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's different for every person. We were in there for over an hour, and then they edit that down to, like, 10 minutes. Um, So I'll be honest. I think I was more nervous. I was more nervous seeing the edited final cut than I was doing the thing. Because when you're doing the thing, you kind of have, I mean, it's still really scary. Don't get me wrong. You're like walking in this room and it's like lights and cameras and five people. And they are very adamant of like, literally, no matter what happens, like that light could fall over and hit you on the head. You could start vomiting profusely. Like we won't stop the cameras. Like (laughs) everything is fair game. So... Have fun. Okay, so, so I don't even know the ending. Like I say that I saw you, but I don't even know what happened. We well, we did not get a deal. Okay, we got we got offered a deal that did, that ended up not getting aired. That was like pretty bad. From who? But, uh, from Kevin, say? which okay. is kind of funny. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so, and it was kind of like a no, like he and he was basically like, "There's no way you would do this," and we're like, "No, there's no way we." Yeah. We were in it. So we were in a really unique position, the kind of backstory of like, we were about two, we were raising money in real life. That was like a thing as a company for the first time we'd been self-funded up until this point. um, And we had some kind of pretty big growth goals that we needed capital. Turns out when you own all of your manufacturing, it's like, there's a lot of cash needs. Our cash cycle is very long. It's about be nine months long from the time that we're buying raw material to the time that we're getting payment for a product. Okay, yeah, I, um, I get so, it now. So to be able to grow, there's like, you know, some you need cash, need cash, right. And to be able to grow fast, we wanted to be able to grow faster than our cash needs or our cash supply at the time would allow us. So we went out and raised capital, pretty normal thing to do. So we were like two thirds of the way through this in real life with like real investors off screen, no cameras involved. Um, and the timing of this whole thing happened so that we were about two thirds of the way through the round when we actually went on Shark Tank. Um, and so we kind of went in, in this interesting position where like, we, we could have done like a TV deal and we could have said, here's our valuation. And we could have made it lower than what it was in real life. And we could have just kind of like did something for show. And maybe in hindsight, that would have been better, but we really, we took the approach of like, this is the valuation that we've gotten in real life. These are the terms that we've set for our other investors. Like maybe this is Ben and I, my husband and I refer to this thing called Seiko optimism, which is like, we are just perpetually, we are so 
embarrassingly optimistic. Okay, about so wait, time out. So you're saying we could have come in and done, when you say TV deal, you mean brought our value down lower in hopes yeah. to get a deal. Okay. Yes. And there's a lot of, like a lot of people use Shark Tank just purely as a marketing tool, which is um, I was about to say, like, like even if you don't get a deal, I've, I've Googled many products after they've been on there oh, and yeah. walked away I mean, with zero deal. There is no way. And honestly, when I applied for the show, um, it was a, a year, over a year before we went through, we weren't even raising money. Literally my thing, I like have this exercise of like, do a couple ridiculous things a month that are almost 0% chance likely to happen, like shoot an email off, ask the question, whatever. And so I was like, literally thinking, how do we get the Seiko story in front of 10 million people uh-huh. for free? <laughs> and there aren't a lot of answers to that question. And Shark Tank is one of them. So I was like, I don't know, let's, you know, let's do this. And they had recently just changed the rule. I had never considered going on Shark Tank before because they used to have a rule that by just going on the show, you had to give up a certain percentage of equity in your company. And I was like, oh, that's gosh. Gonna do that. And they had, they had the season, I think it was the season before they had changed that rule and said, we're no longer taking equity just for exposure kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is like an option. So literally hopped online, did like the online application, filled it out, shot it off into the universe, didn't even tell my husband, didn't tell anybody, didn't think twice about it. And then got a call probably, it was like probably three or four months later. Um, and then it was another six months from that. There's like tons of processes that you go through. So when I first applied, it was like, let's just, how do we get Seiko in front of 10 million people? And this yeah. seems like a good idea. Um, so anyway, long story short, yes, we could have done that. I think the ethics behind that are kind of questionable, which is why we decided of like, we're going to do this. Let's just like, Be let's honest. go on the same pitch that we've given to every other investor. Um, which I like in hindsight, it's like, of course they didn't like, you know, the whole deal with their sharks, like they always get incredible deals that are really crappy for the companies. Um, but we, you know, Seiko optimism thought maybe we would be different and they would, you know, love it. And they exactly, would be so yeah. excited about it. And it ended up being, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> Did you just have your one shoe, your sandal? Yeah. They wouldn't let us show any other product. Oh, so you had fact- other product. We had, we had them and I tried really hard and they, I think just by the nature of like Shark Tank is more of kind of like an item business yeah. invention show. And so they really wanted to concentrate on the sandals, which is like fine, whatever you take, what you can get when it's free PR. Yeah, right. Uh, and we had a really fascinating experience in that, um, it was actually, so there's the getting rejected on national television thing that's disheartening. <laughs> 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 there's that. But to me, honestly, and this comes back to how just kind of in the weeds I can get, but I was I was pretty disappointed with um, the response was across the board so consistently. It reminded me what a bubble I live in in my little social entrepreneur world where we're like thinking about how do we like actually make money and do good at the same time right. and like long-term sustainability and development and job creation and all of this stuff. It reminded me how... Um, how much of a bubble I live in because all five of the sharks basically gave us the same response, which is like, uh, what you should be doing is going out, just trying to make as much money as possible, as fast as possible. And then you can just give money away to poor women in Africa. I could totally see that. Um, and it was just like so consistent across the board that it was like, that part was honestly more disheartening that it was like, this is the way we do it. We make a crap ton of money. And then at the very end of doing all of that, we, and we, don't, we don't think very critically about how we're making mm-hmm. the money or what the effect on mm-hmm. the people, you know, all along the process through the supply chain is. But then at the end of the, at the end of the day, we give it away. And then we kind of feel better about anything that maybe we did in the process that hurt other people that made us super rich. And it's kind of this like interesting puritanical, like, penance thing I think where it's like we feel a little bit guilty about the fact that we like just ruthlessly made a lot of money but now on at the end of that if we were actually successful and have enough that we got everything we wanted out of it and there's leftover then we're gonna like start a philanthropy or like have charity arm and that was like the consistent message that all of them told us is like you're not making enough money fast enough if you really want to help people get better at getting really rich really quick and then give money away at the end. Yeah, and uh, isn't that funny? Because I feel like I live in the same world that you live in, and then when you step out of it, you go, oh, like, I'm totally not the norm. 
Yes. We are the minority. Shocking. Like the way and all, of course, none of this gets aired and I probably need to be more tight lipped on what I'm like actually saying because that contract is like a hundred pages long. But, um, well, if if, if you figure out anything you've said so far, you need to take out, just let me know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I would be a really bad person to interrogate. I'd be like, just ask me a question. I'll tell you a story. And then all the states are gone. (laughs) Um, but and so I'll leave names out of this, but man, we had a couple just like, like the ignorance, there were some comments that were made about Africa in general mm-hmm. that were just like, I can have, I get it. Like if you grew up in rural Illinois, I am privileged to be able to have the global experiences mm-hmm. that I have. Mm-hmm. So when I'm hanging out with people that have not had the level of, of privilege and opportunity to travel and to be aware of the world than I am. It's a very different context. But man, when you are hanging out with billionaires, mm-hmm. who it's like you could literally charter a flight tomorrow yeah. and get on and just like go. There's nothing stopping you. There is no reason. And you have this mentality where you have an entire continent of people mm-hmm. to you is just like a bunch of, it's a war-torn mm politically unstable, like savage land. That is a level, there is a level of like sadness to me that I think we experience. And my husband, he, we had this one moment with, I won't say who it was, but, but someone literally looked at us and was like, you know, they're really pushing us on like stability and how can you build manufacturing in Africa, which, you know, to be fair has been, I, I would, yeah, it's tough, but he literally looks at us and he goes, you tell me like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you're like, you've got a big order that you're working on and a bunch of guys with like a machete show up at your workshop and you're just like, really? Like, is this real? Like, this is, you're literally saying on an entire continent, which by the way, has the fastest growing GDP of any continent in the world right now. You are literally saying like, we can't do business there. We can't do anything productive there because Africans, you know, go around with machetes and go and uh, kill people. and my husband just looked at him like right in the eye and like so calmly and so compassionately was like, you should come visit us someday. I think you'd be really surprised about what you would find, wow. you know, and mm. just like come be a part of what we're doing and then, and then we'll have this conversation kind of thing. Um, and then we had another person really lecture us and it, like there was kind of this whole thing about um, – he, he kind of went into this whole story about, you know, I'm really good at getting really rich really fast. So now I'm like a billionaire. And let me tell you this really inspiring story. Because I'm really rich, I was able to recently spend, um, you know, 24 hours at this homeless shelter. And you know what homeless people really want? And we were like, uh, in my head, I was like, I don't know, like a job, <laughs> some dignity, you know. And he was like, a clean pair of socks. That's just, that is what homeless people need. And so at this point, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is developing quickly. And he was like, and because I am really, really rich, because I'm really good at business and making a lot of money really quickly, I was able to go to Walmart and buy every single one of those people in that shelter a new pair of socks. And at this moment, it's just like, I literally have no more words. You know, it's like. You literally are thinking, what did it cost? What was that, like $87 that cost you? Or not to mention, like, let's talk about the relational aspect of that. Like, hey, here me and my, like, self-tanned billionaireness are going to, like, come in. Like, let's just, let's just for a second think about the relational aspect aspect and the dignity aspect and like the likelihood that one of those people in that shelter ends up becoming someone who actually is like teaching you and changing you and challenging you after this has been like that kind of giver receiver role that's been set up. And it made me sad because I'm like, uh, 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 like we are not right now comparing this team of like 60 amazing, driven, hardworking, passionate, stronger than hell women that I'm walking alongside of and like learning from and are a part of this story to someone who like needs a pair of clean yeah, socks. Yeah. And I, and I think when I hear this, it just makes me realize that I think besides the gospel, I think this is foolishness. Um, and besides like just your mindset cannot even like, I think besides like knowing Jesus and the gospel, your mind can't even fathom this. Right. It's very, it, it, it was a really good reminder of, you know, the upside down kingdomness of it all of like, Mm -hmm. it is kind of backwards and it is, 
it is a new way of thinking about it, but like, by golly, I will 100% get rejected on national television and not take any of your dollars to keep doing what we're doing in the way that we're doing it. Um, and there, you know, there's also something really kind of like confirming in that and yeah. saying like, I believe deeply enough in this that like that, like fatty check that you could wave in front of me is actually like not really that tempting. Right. And it's not like, it's not worth it. And we'll like, keep doing what we're doing and, you know, sometimes be succeeding and sometimes be barely hanging on, but at least being able to do that in a way that we feel like really, really good about. Yeah. You can lay your head down at night and sleep well. Yeah. Not to say that that makes getting rejected in front of 10 million people <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, okay, Liz, I always ask my guests three things they're loving and what you're reading. <clears throat> okay. So I'd love to hear what you're loving. So, Oh, gosh. I'm loving a lot of things. So the first one is a little bit not on time because I'm sure other people have been loving this for a while. But I literally just started reading some Nora Ephron for the first time ever four nights ago. And it's making me a little bit antisocial. That's kind of what you're reading. But it's also what I'm loving. That's okay. You can do both. And it's like Nora Ephron, I've heard her name so many times. And I know she's kind of this like iconic American writer, but I also really don't like um, chick flicks. And so I kind of always associated her very ignorantly with like, eh, I probably wouldn't like writing or reading someone who just like, I think she writes or directs chick flicks. Anyway, I got my roommate slash best friend is, um, has like a big anthology of hers. And so I just started reading it a couple nights ago and I'm a little bit antisocial. So I'm loving that. Um, I'm loving, I just got back from a trip from Cuba. Um, <laughs> I have another girlfriend who was thinking about going to Cuba. <gasps> Tell her to go. She has to go. And she has to go soon-ish. I, right. Um, which is why we changed. So I'm, I'm like, not only loved the, like, obvious things about it, but I'm finding myself spending a lot of um, mental time and energy. I really wish we were only there for, like, five days. So it really wasn't enough to dive in. But there's so much there. So that was your second thing. What's the third thing you're loving? Um, so, Okay. So I'm really loving this um, lighting designer. Her name is Lindsay Alderman. And she um, does this incredible, she makes really, really beautiful chandeliers that are like super kind of industrial, chic, amazing. And they sell for like $20,000. Wow. Okay. And she, um, which this makes me love her so much more is like, Hey, I live in reality. I know that not everyone can afford $20,000 chandeliers. Here's a couple tutorials of like how I got started. And if you want to make, basically, if you want to make a chandelier of my designs, I'm going to tell you how to do it, which to I me is love like that. amazing. So one, I'm just like a fangirl of her for her philosophy on like sharing the wealth and the love and saying like, Hey, this is like, do this. I know my place in the market and it's, not threatened by a bunch of DIYers. So have at it. Um, and so I just built one. And like you order all of the pieces and I think it's like 180 different pieces and the wire and you do all the hard wiring and everything for yourself. But she gives you like step-by-step instructions on how to do it. And I just built my first one and hung it up and it took a while to make it work. Yeah. But amazing. And it was a real, it was like one of my favorite um DIY projects to date because it was pretty like it was a very different skill set and I like learned you know how to hardwire something which I had never done before and it's really beautiful I'm really happy with how it turned out that's amazing uh, yeah so I'm a, I'm a pretty big fangirl of her right now and everyone should check out her work and I think hey, there's but like listen the people yes. are gonna buy $20,000 light they're not gonna build it so she totally. knows what she's doing she does and I love that out of that like I know who I am and I'm confident in that. Like there, like there's such a spirit of generosity that can like come out of that. And yeah. I just think it's like brilliant and also really cool. I love it. Okay, Liz, look, our time is up. Well, it was really delightful. I loved chat with chatting you. with you. Thank okay, you cool. so much. Yeah, thanks. It was great to chat with you. And um, hopefully one of these days I'll re-meet you in person. That sounds good. Okay, have thanks, a good day. Jamie. Guys, wasn't that a great conversation with Liz? I loved hearing about how she was able to merge her entrepreneur abilities with her heart for others. I love that so much. And how her experience on the Shark Tank was crazy to hear about. It's a show that we love to watch, and so it was fun to hear the behind the scenes. As usual, guys, any books that we talked about, you're going to be able to find them over at jamieivy.com slash happyhourbooks. I want to thank our last sponsor for this show, and that's Prep Dish. 
PrepDish, guys, is such a great company. It is a healthy subscription-based meal planning service. Every week when you are a member of their site, you're going to receive an email and it's going to contain a couple things for you. It's going to contain a grocery list plus instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time. Guys, this is all about prepping healthy meals ahead of time. You're going to spend about two to three hours on meal prep whenever you want, Sunday afternoon, Wednesday night, whatever works for you. And then you're going to have meals ready for the entire week. Guys, I cannot tell you how amazing this is. Not only is this an amazing time saver, but the meals are delicious. For example, smoky paprika, chicken legs with roasted carrots, parsnips and fennel, or turkey and zucchini lasagna. Allison is the chef, and she's offering you Happy Hour listeners a special rate of $4 for the first month. That is literally a dollar for a weekly meal plan. You cannot beat that, guys. What you need to do to get started today is go to prepdish.com slash happy hour. And then you can use the code happy hour, and it's going to give you this great deal of $4 for the first month. Guys, you can't beat that, and this is such a way for you to get healthy meals on the table for your family and do it ahead of time to save you time. I'm all about saving time and feeding my people good stuff. So go to prepdish.com slash happy hour. Use the code happy hour. Guys, everything we chatted is going to be up on my website, jamieavi.com, and I would love to hear from you. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Share with me something you love from this episode. Today's show is edited by Knox McCoy, and the music is from Jason Poe. Guys, enjoy your week. Share the show with a girlfriend and have a real happy hour with a friend. I'll see you next week, guys.